Forletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, hello. I want to welcome everyone to uh, our podcast called Forletta Investigates. And I want to welcome our special guest. And I am really honored and fortunate to have him on our podcast. Our guest is the true definition of what a hero is. Our guest is Joe Persante. He's a former DEA agent, spent 22 years as an agent. Um, as I usually mention as part of my monologue, um, I always try to uh, mention DEA and the success that they have and how their agents uh, really go unheralded. And I think, Joe, that you would, you would agree with that statement, wouldn't you? Yes, I do. Joe's a public speaker, and he talks about overcoming life's greatest challenges. Joe stated, if I can do it, so can you. When I found out about Joe from a friend in Pittsburgh and told me Joe's story, I knew that he was special, and I wanted to have this special person on our podcast. Just to talk a little bit about Joe's awards, U.S. Congressional Law Enforcement Badge of Bravery, Federal Law Enforcement Officers Award for Heroism, DEA Purple Heart, first ever DEA recipient of the Secretary of Defense, Medal for Defense of Freedom, and then numerous commendations for bravery and exceptional performance. So, Joe, uh, tell us a little bit how you started your career and, and, and then you became a DEA agent. Well, I was going to college um, back in the 80s. I went to college. The first year was 1987. I went to a small college in southern Michigan and played football there. And at that time, I decided I wanted to go into law enforcement. My father was a Detroit police officer. He had worked on a DEA task force for numerous years. His uncle was a Detroit police officer and his cousin. And I kind of want to follow in the family's footsteps of being a law enforcement officer. My father never pushed me that way, but I just kind of kept drawn to it. Grew up playing team sports, and I had liked the concept of the team activity in law enforcement, watching um, my father do his career do it. So when I expressed an interest in law enforcement, my father suggested that I would go into the DEA. He saw that the DEA as what fit my personality the best. And he thought it was like the blue collar of federal law enforcement. And he felt that it would give me a lot of opportunities. You make decent money and you get to go around the world with DEA 
if you wish. So I graduated from college of December of 91. And when I came out of school, DEA was on a hiring freeze. So went back to the Detroit, Michigan area. And at the time, the Detroit Police Department was hiring. So I decided to apply for the Detroit Police Department. I applied and later got hired in February of 1993 in the hopes that DEA would um, reopen its hiring freeze and apply for them later. And just thought it'd be good to get a good base of like local law enforcement to really learn the job. So went to the Detroit Police Academy, got assigned to a unit which was called Tactical Service Section. It was a citywide unit that handled priority one and two calls, kind of the more aggressive, dangerous calls in law enforcement. We also did the crowd control and mobile field force for the city. And we also did the external perimeter and barricaded gunmen. So did that for three years. And then um, I decided I wanted to try out for DEA SWAT team, which was called the Special Response Team. My father was on that team his last several years in Detroit. And no matter what I did, I always wanted to try to go to the top of whatever I did and try to be the best at. So I tried out and applied for the SWAT team and spent my last year in Detroit as a special response team member. During that time, DEA hiring freeze listed, lifted. I applied, uh, put my application in, and I later got hired with the DEA in June of 1997. Went to the DEA Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And during that time with DEA, you didn't know where you were going until you were almost three quarters of the way through the Academy. And then there was a list that was put out and you could put your first, second and third choice in. And you're not necessarily guaranteed to get any one of those choices. Right. For example, if you spoke Spanish and they had a lot of spots on the border, guess where you're probably going the border. So um, I wanted to go somewhere different. Um, I wanted to go somewhere it was warm. I'm living in Detroit and where the cost of living was relatively low. Um, we had some spots in um, South Florida, which I was interested in because I had a family that vacationed and had seasonal homes there. And there was a spot in Phoenix, Arizona, which piqued my interest because I had a grandmother that was there seasonal. And my wife at the time had a grandfather there. So us having to move away from Michigan, um, I kind of gave it to my wife to, hey, these are the spots I'm interested. Where do you want to go? So she said she would like to go to Phoenix. I had never been there in my life. And I put in Phoenix number one. And I fortunately got Phoenix. Yeah, you're you're very fortunate to get a nice warm place like Phoenix. Um, I I tried to get South Florida too after I got out of the academy, but uh, <laughs> they sent me back to Washington D.C. Um, so none of that changed. And we used to say that uh, your assignment is picked by somebody throwing darts in a circle as to where they're going to send you, and uh, that kind of helped true back when I started. And I know things are, are a lot different now. 
So yeah, now you actually, when you um, accept a job with DEA, you put a list in and you know where you're going even before you go to the academy. Yeah, that's that's kind of nice in a sense. At least gives you some heads up. Um, yes. So you you started your career in Phoenix, and how long were you uh, how long were you assigned and working in the Phoenix field division? Approximately twelve years. So I went there. I showed up. They're like, "You're on the methamphetamine clandestine laboratory task force." I'm like, "Okay, I never saw meth once in Detroit. Detroit, we dealt with a lot of heroin." Um, cocaine and of course marijuana. So I show up to Phoenix and they're like, okay, you're back going back to the academy to go to Klan lab school. I'm like, damn, I just left that damn place back to Klan lab school, learned how to make methamphetamine and the whole nine yards. And it's kind of funny when people find out that I'm a DEA agent or was, oh, I watched Breaking Bad. I said, well, I did meth labs for five years. So I know I could tell you all about that crap. So finish meth lab school, went back to Phoenix and worked on a uh, Maricopa County clandestine laboratory enforcement team, kind of uh, made of local police officers and DEA agents. And we were assigned to clean up and process meth labs. Most people only stay there a couple of years. I was there Mm -hmm. like almost four years, four to five years. And as general public wouldn't understand how really dangerous meth labs are, how explosive they are. Um, and we know that the, the Mexican cartels, not too far from where you were, were shipping a lot of it meth over uh, into Arizona and heading, heading east. Oh, most definitely. The problem, you know, you know, these aren't chemists that are making meth, right. you know, here in the States, you know, they go on the internet and they get a recipe and, they're always trying to hurry up things, and um, that's when they end up causing explosions and fires. And after you know they use all the different chemicals, they mix acids and bases and things that shouldn't be mixed together, and it off gases and cause problems. And we still, I probably realistically, on a low average, I've probably been in over four hundred methamphetamine laboratories, and we really still don't know the long term effects that it could have on our health. Uh, no doubt about it. No doubt. So you, you worked on the on the meth lab team, and then DEA began to expand its operations overseas. Now, uh, the first operation that they knew that was specifically in countries was called Operation Snowcap, which focused on uh, the Bolivia, uh, Peru, and Colombia, and uh, agents trained uh, with the military about destroying uh, cocaine labs. And and then, uh, obviously, um, DEA became involved in in, uh, in the overseas issues with Afghanistan. And so they, they actually developed a team, which you uh, became a member of. So give us some information on how, what it was called and how you became a member of that team. Okay, I'll just give you a brief history of what happened. After 9-11, when the U.S. military went over there, we had some idea what was going on over there, but not a 100% accurate idea. And when the military went over there, they soon learned that the Taliban and these other insurgent organizations were using the production and sale of heroin to fund their terroristic activities. So 
that really wasn't the military's um, area of expertise. So they called on DEA, um, is our subject matter expertise in drugs, and hey, can you come help us? So as you explained, at the time, we no longer had a team like such such Operation Snowcap. So DEA, to start over at the drawing board, we had to get a team together. So they used some of the um, former guys that run Snowcap to help develop this team, which was called FAST, and it stands for Foreign Deployed Advisory and Support Team, where we would go over and work with the U.S. military and an Afghan partner force, and we would kind of mentor the Afghans, and we would go and investigate where the bigger uh, heroin labs were, where there was big stockpiles of chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin, and we would raid these locations with um, other U.S. military assets, mostly special forces, and with an Afghan partner force who we were mentoring because we really had no rule of law over there. So we were just there to mentor them and we would find out where they were and we would raid these locations and usually do pretty, do pretty good. And we found the cause and effect that the more we hit them where their money was coming from, the less of these different explosive things and different weapons of war that and terror that they use, they couldn't purchase them, purchase them as much. Now, did you go through specialized training uh, to become a member of the FAST team? Yes. Um, so what had happened is that when FAST first came out, there was this just a solicitation. Hey, do you want to go on this team and go overseas? You got a lot of guys that applied. And a lot of these guys been there, done that in the past, you know, with military or special forces or members of SWAT teams in the local police department, but they may have not been physically fit to do it at a level which they needed to do it at right at that moment. So what happened is they were going overseas and they weren't able to keep up how they should with these special ops teams. So members of FAST, the hires up, decided, hey, we need to institute a selection. So they developed a selection course, which was made up of various parts of other U.S. Um, military special ops selections. So we need to see, okay, um, are you physically capable now? Are you mentally capable? You know, can you meet all these things at the current time? So it was a really, real rigorous selection course. Um, when I was deciding to go on fast, I was like 39 years old and I've always been athletic and pretty much in shape. I had a buddy that was already on the team and he told me what the the course involves. He's like, you need to be ready. And they kind of give you a, um, a list of how to prepare for it, you know, different runs, different things, different ruck marches, you know, sw- we had a lot of swimming stuff in there. So I started preparing, um, went to selection February of 2009. And um, we started, I think, with 36 individuals, 36 agents. And at the end, 11 of us made it and finished. Wow. So it 
there was a pretty big washout. Um, not only you had to do physical activities, they had really focused on the mental. And um, also, we had to do what's called peer evals also. And that was a lesson learned um, from prior people coming on from teams. You know, they flew through the selection process. They knew the military skills are in really good shape. But when you were living in combined spaces overseas with people, they couldn't get along with anybody. But excuse my language, they were so with this um, perival at halfway through and at the end, you had to list your top three individuals. They were in your class and your bottom three and put reasons why. So it kind of checked and balanced if a you know this person flew through, but they didn't get along with everybody, they could not be chosen for the team just on that also, which was kind of good. So I ended up um, making it through. The first part is like a week um, in Quantico where you're just tested on this various things and some things are go, no go, which means if you don't pass them, you're out and you have other events which you can fail one or two, but then you're kind of look at put on probation and you could be thrown out. So. And then after that, you have a secondary phase where you um, are trained by a U.S. Special Forces unit, either Army Green Berets or U.S. Navy SEALs. And then you make it through a third, go to a third phase where you do in-house training with current FAST team members. I remember flying home after phase one and my girlfriend picking me up at the airport in phoenix and i was just a disaster she's like what the hell happened to you i was just beat the <laughs> um pretty much lost every toenail on both feet had a blister on every part of my feet was oh, beat the hell and i actually had to go to the emergency room the next morning because my foot was infected but i ended up making it the biggest challenge was that is i knew i wouldn't quit anything was just with my age of physically being able to continue and not getting injured. So how, how long did that training, how long did that training entail? Um, the first phase is a week. Um, the second phase, it kind of varied, but was usually um, eight to 12 weeks. And the last phase was a couple weeks. Okay. Well, so you're, you're trained by the top notch of the military and now um, you're getting ready to be assigned uh, to deployment. So tell us a little bit about deployment and where you were first sent. Okay. So um, I later got picked up um, for fast in October of 2009. So at the time, FAST was made up of three teams, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie, and they wanted to expand FAST and add two additional teams, Delta and Echo. So I was put on Delta team, which was made up of some new um, agents that came through our selection and previous selections that were sitting in a pool of candidates along with um, current FAST team members. So I get there in October, and we start working up to a pre-deployment workup to go to Afghanistan. And how it worked at the time is that what we had a team in Afghanistan pretty much all year long. And each team would do 
approximately 120 days in country, give or take some days. So one team would come go and the other team would, would leave and you, you just keep going in that, that cycle. So I was um, assigned to Delta and we were scheduled to do the spring summer tour of 2010. Now, the reason the spring summer tour, early fall tour is kind of important is that's what's called fighting season over in Afghanistan. Right. They do get bad weather in the winter. It's in the mountains there, um, especially the northern part of Afghanistan. You get snow. So most of the activity as far as the fighting and the production of heroin goes on during that time period. So it's the most active. So we begin our pre deployment training and then it was decided that we were going to go back and train with the seals this time we were going to go train with the west coast seals when i originally went through selection we went with the east coast seals so it was determined our relationship with the navy that we were going to do land warfare in nyland california at camp billy macon with seal team five so we go there. Um, nobody had ever went and trained with regular SEAL teams and integrated before. So we get there and they're like, who are you guys? You know, the basic um, sailors didn't know what was going on, but there's their command staff did. So they integrated right. with the SEALs and we did 21 days of day and night of land warfare training, which was a pretty much um, kick in the gut. It was as far as the Navy's pre-deployment training goes, that's their toughest. Right. But it really yeah. got you squared away with all your gear and everything and your night vision and lasers and everything. So you came yeah. out of there feeling pretty confident in your abilities. How did the SEAL team accept you guys into their, into their training routine? It's kind of funny um, because with Special Forces, if they have not worked with you before, there's what I call a lot of measuring going on. They're like, who are you? You know, what can you do? Can you shoot, move, communicate? And it usually takes them working with you a little bit to see, to vet you, to see how you are. You know, we're not, we, we were not a special force forces. Right. We were not a DEA's version of special forces, but we could do pretty damn good and shoot, moving and communicate. So at first they're a little standoffish, but once they get to know you and see your abilities, you know, they accept you into the fold. And a lot of times when we go with these units and stuff and we, they make us do their shooting tests and everything. And they're like, you guys shoot pretty damn good. I said, most of us been shooting the majority of our life. And in fact, in Nyland, um, during this land warfare training, we had a competition. It was a stress shoot. It was day and night. Um, without and at night, you had to do night vision. You had to run through this thing, do these physical activities, and shoot these targets, and you were scored. So I was paired up with one of the senior chiefs in the Navy, and um, you go and shoot this. You know, do this competition. at At the end, you know, the people who won they win a case of beer, and right. it was kind of ironic that I was one of the older, I was the old, oldest guy in our team and the senior chief, he was one of the older guys in the, the SEAL team and him and I won the stress shoot. 
That's awesome. So now that you have this uh, really great training, um, tell us about now you, you're going to be embedded in Afghanistan. And how did that work, uh, working side by side with uh, uh, the military and the Afghan counter counterparts over there? Yeah, it's um, definitely a challenge. And every time we go over there, it's a little different. There's certain teams that we work with. They may be doing a, have a different assignment at the time. So we go over there. And um, the first tour I went over there, our team was split up and twosies and threesies. And my, one of my partners, Travis Brooks, and I were assigned to go work with a Army Green Beret team, um, ODA 1231 um, for Special Forces Group. They were out of um, Washington State. And um, we were assigned in the, the Panjway, Afghanistan area. And that, and then the Kandahar area, which we were seeing at a base in Kandahar, is kind of the birthplace for the Taliban. So it's a really hot insurgent area, insurgent activity. Also a huge area for the production of heroin. So we are assigned, we're embedded in living with them. And then we have our, our Afghan counterparts, which we have to take. So you get there. Um, we use some of our intel where these um, particular meth, I mean, not meth, but heroin labs are. Um, where stockpiles of chemicals and equipment are, along with the, we use the military and intelligence um, people too. And we will get together and we will decide, hey, this is a good target to hit. This is not a good target to hit. So we, we plan an operation. We get our Afghans and um, we do a workup and then we will go raid these areas and um it's um it's a trip you can do all the training in your world in the world and until you actually go over there and you realize you're like people still live like this it's like living in biblical times you're living in stone mud huts living with the animals you know no running water no bathroom facilities Right. You can do all the training in the world and, you know, training is dangerous, but you're going over there and it's real bullets being shot at you and people trying to kill you. I remember my very first mission we went on. We try to go at night to use our technology with our night vision and lasers. And I remember landing and getting off the helicopter and saying to myself, I guess it's for real now, Joe. And I'm just, you know, trying to keep the people I'm with in sight and it's kind of difficult with night vision, you know, as you get used to it. And thankfully the first mission, it was pretty, um, not too eventful, which was good to try to, um, you know, your first mission. So you're not getting a huge baptism of fire. So it, it was good. And, you know, we rolled on that tour and, um, it was, Pretty action-packed, I can say. Um, most of the missions we had, um, there was um, gunplay. Because the problem is that these labs and stuff are the source of their money. And they're behind enemy lines. 
and they're going to fight like hell to keep them because that's their money. And a lot of times they're pretty well defended. And when we were in Panjaway, there was a lot of IEDs, improvised and explosive devices implanted, and people were getting tore up with IEDs all the time. And, you know, it was just um, nerve wracking. You know, you get out, you do your mission, and um, it gets crazy, and you can't wait till the helicopters come to get you. And But I explain to people, like, aren't you scared? Yeah, you're scared, um, but you still have to do your job. But I explain it too. It's like going to the amusement park and riding the biggest, baddest roller coaster. You're, ri- you're scared, you're riding it, but then you get off. And you're like, okay, when are we going to go back again? So, right. you know, then you, you know, you go back again. And there was times I was over there and bullets are cracking over my head. And I'm saying to myself, Joe, what the hell did you volunteer for? What the hell did you get yourself into? But, you know, you get a sense of self-satisfaction, you know, you're over there, you know, you're fighting the good fight, you know, our country's at war and we're, you know, we're also trying to do our part with the drugs and, you know, you know, trying to stem that. And, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty satisfying. So we roll through um, the first three quarters of the tour and then ODA 1231 is getting ready to leave country. So ODA 3116, um, third special forces group out of Fort Bragg, they're getting ready to come in. So we're going to work with them. And ODA 3116 has worked with FAST before. So they, they know what we were about. So they're just ready to hit the ground running with us. And the first mission we do with um, 3116, they had some people from ODA 1231 we went on a joint mission, and then the last mission um, of that tour, we just were with ODA 3116. So well, let me ask you this. So was DEA's uh, operations becoming uh, effective uh, regarding the Taliban's operations with the heroin labs and, and of course, uh, them moving money into different locations? We were definitely having an effect of slowing it down. And um, we definitely saw with the intel, when we were hammering them pretty good, it was slowing down their activities. You eventually did, uh, I guess, several tours there. Yes. Uh, And before we um, move on to that, I wanted to go on to our last mission with ODA 3116 because it was pretty crazy. So we get intel that we're going to go um, to this place, um, Hazi Madad, in, in the Panjaway area. And this area here, um, they have a hospital for the Taliban, and they have several old Russian Dishka anti-aircraft guns that are harassing our coalition planes and helicopters when they're flying by. And there is a small combat outpost there. It's a small base out there, which we have some 101st Airborne guys out there. And there's a bunch of marijuana fields and stuff out there. So they're like, we're going to raid that location. So the U.S. Rangers go in a couple days before us, they take a couple casualties, have some pretty heavy fighting. So we're planning this op 
and um, we're briefing it. And they said, you know, we're going to insert in, we're going to fly in three CH-47s, the big twin rotor helicopters. We're going to infill and we're going to try to find these dishkas and eradicate the marijuana fields there. And they're like, okay. Um, and there's a high probability that one of the helicopters on infill is going to get shot down. So you're like, oh, shit. You know, hopefully that's not mine, you know, but you're like in a big coffin there. So we plan, hit it um, in dark. We land. Um, we don't really take any incoming fire, but we start moving through, um, start pushing through during the day. And um, we start um, getting some contact with the enemy, you know, getting a couple of firefights and basically um, suppress them. And one of the things they have over there is these, ICOM radios. They're like, you know, like walkie-talkie radios that they communicate with each other. And mostly they just talk shit on these things. You know, oh, we're killing them. You know, we're beating them. We're blowing them up. You know, we'll find one of their IEDs and we'll destroy it. And they think they're blowing us up and killing us. And, you know, we're we're beating the infidel and everything like that. And they're talking over these things. Oh, we got to find some place to put the PKM machine guns. We're like, yeah, whatever. You know, most of them, like I said, they're just bullshitting on there. So, you know, hey, screw you. So we're moving through and um, we're taking contact and we pretty much do what we had to do there. And the air wouldn't come pick us up because it was too hot, you know, because there was still too much contact going on. So it was decided that we were going to move on foot to the combat outpost, which is only probably a, mm, three miles away at max. So we're going to push through. It's daytime now and it's pretty hot. And um, so we stage and get ready to make our movement. And it was just kind of an eerie feeling. It was all the locals there in this little village, just like giving us looks. And it just, you had an uneasy feeling where the hair in the back of your neck was standing up. And you probably know, you know, you being in law enforcement, as long as you do, usually that's a sign that something's going to go bad. You know, your, your spidey senses are tingling. So we're walking through this village, single file, moving out, moving tactically. And one of my guys in the fast team says, I think I see somebody up in that mud hut building there. So one of the Green Berets looks and he's like, ah, I don't see anybody. So we keep moving. And then all hell broke loose. We got caught um, in what the military calls a close or near ambush. Basically, you're in hand grenade throwing range of your enemy. So I have, luckily for me, I was by like this half pony wall. It was up to about my mid waist. And I have rounds coming over my head and coming to the side of me. So at the time, I had a belt-fed machine gun. And when I came to fast, they're like, you're a big guy. You can carry this belt-fed machine gun. I said, yes, I'm big, but I'm old, and that thing's still heavy. So, yeah. So we're getting round zinging. And over the radio, when the ambush breaks out, um, we had like seven of the people with us were hit right off the bat. And then one's calling off 
calling out with a femoral bleed. We're like, oh, shit. So, you know, they weren't bullshit. They were finding a place for the machine guns, and they found a pretty good spot. So I'm, I'm firing away, trying to engage targets the best I can. We got people throwing hand grenades, shooting law rockets, and I'm running through my ammo. This ammo on a automatic belt-fed machine gun does not last long. So I'm shooting, and then the Green Brace Afghan counterparts, they carry a machine gun similar to what I carry with the same caliber round. And I'm like, tell one of our Afghanis who speaks English, go get me some more ammo. So he goes back and he gives me this little link with about 25 rounds. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this? So I just link it with my ammo, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to. I need to conserve some ammo a little bit because if we start getting overrun, I want to have something left. So we finally get some close air support to kind of help suppress the firing. And then we have um, medevac comes in to get our wounded people out of there. And I tell you, they had balls of steel. They're flying in. They got RPG rounds going to the left of them, to the right of them. They land, get our people out of there. And thankfully, nobody, we took no fatal casualties that day. So we suppressed it a little bit. And then, okay, we're going to keep moving on foot to the combat outpost, which is only probably about a mile away now. So we did what um, I refer to as our Mogadishu Mile. And I'm talking about back from that Black Hawk Down, that movie where they had to run and shoot that final mile back to right. the state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're running and shooting. Um, we're disregarding anything for IDs and like going through this field. I'm like, oh, I step on the IED now. I guess I step on the IED. So we're shooting and moving, and finally the 101st, they hear all the commotion and on the radio, and they come out with their gun trucks, and they start shooting. Uh, we had to make into the combat outpost, but we were just, like, all laying in there at the combat outpost like a bunch of wet beat dogs. And it's like, oh, my God. Right, that just, right. So it was kind of our, our, our last mission. <laughs> it was the craziest of that tour. Well, I, I know a lot of us, when we think of DEA, we're, we're always thinking of law enforcement. And, and a lot of us uh, with our law enforcement backgrounds uh, have no idea what DEA really does. Um, and especially in the circumstances, in the most dangerous situation that a human being could be, including you know, DEA agents along with our military, obviously being in, in active firefights. Um, so what I'd like to get to, so basically, Joe, you did three tours in, in Afghanistan, and I believe another one was in Honduras. And so- uh, I did two in Afghanistan, one in Honduras. Okay, two in Afghanistan, one in Honduras. So uh, when you're going back and forth, how was that uh, affecting your, your, uh, your home, your lifestyle at home? It's pretty tough because you're gone for, you know, at least four months at a time and, you know, you're away from your family and your kids and it's pretty tough. And thankfully, when we get home from our tour, they let you decompress and spend time with your family to try to, you know, acclimate your life back, you know, to the regular world. And it's it's tough and it's it's very hard and it's hard mentally because when somebody goes to war, you never come back the same. And it's just way it is but luckily with DEA with our employee assistance program they have you come back and talk to the counselors and different things and 
there's things available, but it's, it's very, it's very difficult. And it's very hard on the family. Right. So let's go to where you're at. And I guess um, you go back to Afghanistan again for another deployment um, and, and talk about um, your biggest life-changing event. What happened to you over there? Okay. Um, so I went back to Afghanistan in 2011. This time we're going to do the um, mid to late summer, early winter tour, which you're in the fighting season still. So at the time, most of the U.S. Special Forces were tied up on these village stability programs where they would go live in these different communities and try to get the locals to see our ways of living and kind of simulating coming over to our beliefs and things. But that's a whole nother story that we could talk about for hours. So they weren't available. So the Australian commandos, which is one of their top special forces team, decided, hey, okay, we'll work with DEA. So, but they could only go in the Helmand province in Afghanistan. That's the Helmand province is where our Marine Corps was over there. That was their area of responsibility. Uh, another big area for producing heroin and insurgent activity. So we roll with the Aussies and we're making this huge lab seizures and getting a lot of firefights also um, because they weren't used to us being there. We were just the second op I did that year. We seized the largest heroin lab at the time the DEA ever seized over there. So we were doing real well. So we're coming up in we're mid to late October now in an area called the, um, the Tarenkout, um, not Tarenkout, but um, uh, a bazaar, the Pake Bazaar, I'm sorry, the Pake Bazaar. And bazaars are like outdoor, outdoor flea markets over there, and they sell anything from like sundries and shampoos to propane to chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin and ID making material and small arms. So this bazaar comes up hot on our radar that they're doing illegal stuff again. In fact, our fast team that was there before us hit that same bazaar with the Aussies and seized a lot of illegal stuff and got in a pretty big firefight. And the team leader of that fast team, Brett Hamilton, he was shot in the buttocks. He got the Forrest Gump wound when he was fighting his way back to the helicopter. So, this bazaar comes up hot again. So we know we're, we know we're going to meet resistance. So we want to go at night to use um, our advantage with the night vision and lasers. But unfortunately for us, when we could hit it with the Australias and our Australians and our partner forces, there was not an air wing available that could fly us at night. So we had to use say, an air wing and this air wing, um, was using some Afghani pilots. We were training them with our pilots and um, some British pilots to fly, to be able to do things on their own when we leave, but they could not fly at night. So we weren't very happy about that, but Hey, we're going to go, we're going to give it our, give it our best. So we planned the operation for, October 31st, Halloween of 2011. 
So we're going to fly in there with three helicopters, four helicopters, um, with our Australians, their counterparts, um, our fast team members, along with our counterparts. We're going to sweep through the bazaar, seize anything we need to seize, destroy it, um, take representative samples and samples and photographs, because we can't take all the stuff with us. It's just impossible. So we usually take um, representative samples, photographs, and just destroy everything on scene. So I was in charge of a team of fast team members and Afghanis to search one side of the bazaar and another partner of mine on the team, Justin Vanderbilt, was going to do the same on the other side. And the Australians were going to provide an outer perimeter to help to keep the insurgents from maneuvering in on us. But the problem was it was kind of like a little mountainous area. So they kind of had the high ground. So we fly in just after first lights on Halloween morning, land, we get in position, the Australians get in position, we begin to move into the bazaar. At this time of day, nobody's in the bazaar, which is what we want. Um, so we start receiving incoming fire pretty much as soon as we start sweeping through the bazaar. It's pretty ineffective. In fact, I was standing in the opening of one of the stalls to the bazaar, and there was a beat-up abandoned car behind me. I hear a shot fired. I hear the round hit the car behind me, and I feel the back of my neck burn. I'm like, oh, shit. So I go into one of the stalls, empty stalls that's not empty, but to where our Afghan counterparts were searching. I put my hand in the back of my neck, see if I had any blood. I didn't see any blood. I had one of the Afghanis look at it and he said, no, you're good. But the round got so close to my neck, I felt the heat of the bullet. So I kind of had my guard up after that, trying to use all the tactics and techniques that I've used, learned through my years of law enforcement and DEA and FAST and all that. So we're finding a bunch of poppy seed and different things to manufacture heroin. So around this time, in this old crappy loudspeaker PA system, the Taliban does their call to arms over there. And they're saying, and the translator tells us what they're saying, today's your day to die, we must rid the infidels, we must drive them out of our land. So the incoming fire on us drastically increases and we can really hear the Australians getting into it with them. And we had close air support via helicopters from Marine Air Wing, we hear them getting into it. So. We're finishing up doing what we have to do, um, taking pictures and destroying the evidence. So once we're in position to get going, we call to the Australians, hey, we're ready to move out. Our helicopters come inbound to get us. So we're moving to our um, helicopter pickup locations. It's probably only about mm, five, 600 meters away. But the problem was we got bogged down into the fight then, too. So the helicopters are ready to land, but we weren't in position, so we had to wave them off and have them leave and loiter in the area waiting for us to be ready. So we finally get in position, and we get set up in our different spots where the helicopters are come pick us up. Four helicopters are coming in, three land, one doesn't. That's the... Afghan crew and piloted one. One of the helicopter was all Afghan crew and pilot with one British guy in there. 
they just don't have the skills as our pilots and they were nervous with all the incoming fire and the brownout situation with the helicopters coming in with the rotor wash, they kick up a lot of dust. So our Afghanis were supposed to get on that helicopter. So it doesn't land. So they run on to the next available helicopter, which is ours. So we run out there trying to get them off. And this is an open field at this point. And they're not getting off. Uh, I don't blame them necessarily because I wouldn't want to go back into that hell. So we're standing in an open field now getting shot at my machine gun fire and everything else. So we just tell them to leave, go, because we don't want to get shot standing in this open field. So the three helicopters lift off. So we have some fast team, our fast team members with two Australian commandos left. So we take cover in a ditch. So at this point, all the incoming fire is focused on us. So a short time later, our helicopter lands about 100 meters away. And I remember getting up to run, saying to myself, this is going to be a real run because of all the incoming fire. But we can't stay there. The longer we stay there, the more they have time to amass and to maneuver in on us. So one of the last things I remember is I get up to run and I remember firing shots towards insurgents that were shooting on us. And from this point on, my I don't have any memory on my own. It's just what teammates related to me. I guess I got to the helicopter about mid-pack. I paused and began laying covering fire down while the rest of my teammates got on or near the helicopter. Once everybody got on or near, my team leader said, let's go. I turned left to run on the helicopter, and that's when I got struck by a bullet. Um, the round hit the right side of my ballistic helmet, went through my right temple, through my head, through the frontal lobe of my brain, and out the left side of my head. Of course, I fall like a ton of bricks. Uh, my team leader, he thinks I just fell. But later talking that I felt kind of weird because I didn't put my hands out in front of me to stop my fall. So he gets over to me, hey, get up, get up. I'm not moving. He rolls me over and he sees that I'm shot in the head. So my teammates think I'm dead. So they pick me up with a couple of Australians. They throw me on the back of the helicopter. Um, they, they take off. They begin to look at me just in a hope that maybe I'm still alive. And one of our guys, um, and fortunately, we were all really trained in tactical combat medicine. And we unfortunately um, have to use it more than we want. He says he's still breathing. He's alive. So they begin to work on me. They do various things and get the bleeding stopped. And they went to stick a nasal phalanger airway up my nose to help you be able to breathe better. And I came too. I don't remember this. I guess I was talking and making sense. And I wasn't complaining about my head, even though I had a hole on each side. I said I could move my leg. Um, so they thought I was shot in the leg too. But what had happened is that um, I had been shooting quite a bit. And when I got knocked unconscious, I'd laid on the barrel of my rifle and it burned the inside of my left knee pretty bad. So I don't remember any of this. And um, they treated me. And got me to the base we were staying at. We landed there. The ambulance came out. Um, they didn't have a stretcher because they thought my guys had me on the stretcher. We had stretchers, but they didn't have me on one. I heard this commotion, so I stood up to walk off the helicopter. 
And my teammates, no, 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 Joe, we got you. <laughs> and then they carried me and threw me on the ambulance and brought me to the medical facility there and did what they can do for me there. But they didn't have a neurosurgeon and eye surgeon there. Right. So they transferred me to a, a medevac flight and had me flown to Kandahar Airfield, which they had a really good medical hospital there with one of my fast team members, Matt Stewart. And they flew me over there. So I arrived there. And they take a look at me and they don't think they can save me. They just were going to let me pass peacefully and fly me home in an angel flight, deceased back to the States. But the neurosurgeon sees what good shape I'm in, talks to my teammates. I was talking afterwards, got up to stand up to walk off the helicopter. He's like, if I get him in surgery and relieve some of the pressure that's building up in his brain, I think I can at least get him back home to the States alive. They don't know what condition I'm going to be in, whether I'm going to be a vegetable, whether I would you know, remember anything, would I be able to speak, talk, have my personality right. or whatnot. So he talks the command into doing surgery. So he spends four and a half hours operating on me, doing a craniotomy. Basically removed all the frontal cranial bone piece to my forehead, got the wound cleaned out, and then the eye surgeon came in. Um, the bullet, we believe, was an armor-piercing round from a belt-fed machine gun that went through my head. Um, we're not 100% sure, but that's what we surmise. The round didn't hit my eyes, but the pressure of the round going through my head ruptured both my eye globes and detached both retinas. So she spent roughly eight hours piecing my eyes back together with a microscope. So she does this. Um, the next morning, I am flown back to the United States um, with one of my partners, Travis Brooks. We land in Lawnstuhl, Germany at the medical facility there. I have to spend three nights there because the pressure of my head was rising. And then um, was flown to Andrews Air Force Base um, in Maryland and taken to Walter Reed National Naval Medical Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. So at this, this time, all my family members are notified back home. Um, the DEA has a trauma team, with, which is agents that are trained in these kind of critical incidents and traumas, and they go out to the houses and notify, notify everybody. And I told my fiance at the time that if you can't get a hold of me, um, I'm on a mission. I'll Skype you or, you know, I'll, I'll text you or call you when I get back. Only worry if two people come to the door. And she was an intensive care nurse and worked nights. And that morning, two agents came to the door and she, she lost it. And they're like, he's alive right now. He's in surgery. We don't know. So, you know, they scrambled everybody up and got him to meet me and uh, at Walter Reed. So I finally get over there. Um, they let my family see me and my fiance when I arrive. And of course, I'm a mess. I got tubes coming out of everywhere. I have no uh, forehead, you know, no bone in there. And I guess when uh, my fiance saw me, she screamed, ran out of the room and passed out. And she is an intensive care nurse. But when it's your own family member or somebody you love, it's a lot different. Well, 
they basically saved your life, uh, short of a miracle that uh, you're still talking to us. And, and I know that uh, you have been through some real serious uh, operations, trials and tribulations in your own life. Uh, and uh, you became uh, blind as a result of the shooting in, in Afghanistan. Um, and I, uh, I can only, you know, think <laughs> what goes through somebody's mind once they're in a situation like you were in. Um, so I know we could, we could go on for hours, Joe, listening to your story, but this is uh, truly an amazing story of a real hero. And what uh, DEA produces as as agents who really believe in what they do. Um, so, Joe, I know that uh, you do a lot of public speaking, and uh, and I know you're out on the the, the motivational speaking. It, uh, and unfortunately, because of COVID right now, that kind of limits your abilities of traveling. So. I guess once things begin to pick back up, is there a way um, either law enforcement agencies or the private sector uh, to get in touch with you uh, to hear you speak? Yes, um, they can email me. And my email address is my name. It's um, J-O-E-P-I-E-R-S-A-N-T-E at yahoo.com. You could just send an email to me stating um, what you want, and I'll be more than happy to um, try to accommodate that. Well, Joe, let me conclude is that uh, this is one of the uh, most interesting shows that we've done. Uh, and as I mentioned in the beginning of our show, that you're the definition of a true hero. And uh, I want to thank you. Uh, for your service to our country, the risk that you took, and the trauma that you and your family went through in your life. So, uh, again, thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast, and God bless you. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was my honor and my pleasure. Thanks. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.